Time for QuackCast 57, plus or minus two or three. I have no idea what number this really is. Now, before we get to the podcast at hand, I would like to quote Mr. Deity and say, thank you, 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 thank you. All those people who voted for the QuackCast, it was not for naught. I won, again this year, Best Health Podcast for the People's Choice Podcast Awards. To which I can only say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, I may be an arrogant, self-centered son of a bitch. And I think that there's no point in false modesty. Because it was a well-deserved award. But I really do appreciate all my listeners taking the time and voting for me. Thank you. Now, we will move on to QuackCast 57 or so. Oh, so silly coxinum and other flu bits. This is a rewrite of the Science-Based Medicine blog entry under the same name. So if you've read it before, you can just skip ahead to your next podcast. Part the first, Ososilicoxinum. I keep a half an eye out on the medicine displays in the stores where I shop. And this year is the first time I have seen Ociliococcinum being sold. Airborne has been standard for years but Airborne has now been joined by Ociliococcinum in the shelves. Dumb and dumber. It may be a bad confirmation bias, but it seems I am seeing more Iocane powder, I'm sorry, I mean Ociliococcinum at the stores. On listening to a podcast recently, one of the hosts suggested a homeopathic remedy for flu symptoms and then specifically suggested Ososiliococcinum. Now, this is a technology podcast, the 404, and the hosts are certainly bright, educated people. Why would he suggest Ociliococcinum? Probably because he's unaware of how oh-so-silly the product is. Let's start by looking at the box. Sure seems impressive. It is non-sedating, no drug interactions, no side effects. It doesn't say it, but it also has no cholesterol and no radon. It is, I have heard, the biggest emitter of N-rays ever discovered. It is, quote, officially included in the homeopathic pharmacopoeia of the United States, end quote, or H-pus. Huh. That's H-pus. Anything with pus in the designation must be good, right? So what is the H-pus? I get this information from Brendan McKenzie from the December 16th Science-Based Medicine Post. The H-Pus was a list of homeopathic remedies first published in 1897 by the American Institute of Homeopaths and now is maintained by an organization of homeopathic experts and is called the Homeopathic Pharmacopoeia Convention of the United States. The inclusion of homeopathic remedies was primarily due to the efforts of Senator Royal Copeland. His first name was Royal. That was not a designation of kingship, a physician who is trained in homeopathy. Senator Copeland was the primary author and sponsor of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938, and amongst the other things it did, it regulated and protected homeopathic nostrums, provided they were listed in the Homeopathic Pharmacopoeia of the United States. So, in 1938, With no information about safety, which is really not a worry with homeopathy, or efficacy, which is a worry, 
all the nostrums in the homeopathic pharmacopoeia of the United States were declared A-OK, and it has been such ever since. Hundreds of versions of water, all declared fit for human consumption and to be used for the treatment of disease. Now, what is the active ingredient in Ososiliococcinum? It is listed as, and I'm not very good at pronouncing Latin, Anis Barbarae Hepatis and Cordis Extractum 200C. Whoa, the power of Latin, like a Harry Potter curse. I bet the product has been imbued with the Cafundus charm, which may explain why it is, quote, used by millions of people and is recommended by doctors around the world, end quote. So what is this active ingredient, this Anis Barbarae Hepatis Acortis Extractum? In the 1919 flu epidemic, a physician who did not understand that there are artifacts on the slide saw what were probably bubbles which moved randomly due to Brownian motion. Looking at other patients' tissues with a microscope, he found what he thought was not only the cause of influenza, but the cause of virtually all diseases, small cocci, round balls, that oscillated under the microscope. He found these wiggling bubbles in all the tissues of all the ill people he examined and thought, as is often the case in alternative medicine, he had discovered the true cause of all disease. Sigh. Yet another cause of all illness. Now, he is the only person before or since to ever see these oscillating cocci, but he did give them a name. Oscillococcinum. Subsequently, for somewhat obscure reasons, he became of the opinion that the heart and the liver of the Muscovy duck were the most concentrated source of these oscillating cocci. I have found that the suggestion is that duck, liver, and heart is a source of influenza, and that's why he chose it. But the product predates the discovery of influenza, so that would be an oh-so-silly explanation. So, how best to treat disease caused by these oscillating cocci? Turn the oscillating cocci into a homeopathic nostrum. So here's what you do. You take a one liter of bottle. You mix it with pancreatic juice and glucose. Then you kill a canard de barbie, a muscovy duck. You whack its head off and you take 35 grams of its liver and 14 grams of its heart and put them into the bottle. Why liver and heart? Well, Dr. Roy, the discoverer of the oscillating cocci, wrote, the ancients considered the liver as the seat of suffering even more important than the heart, which is a very profound insight because it is on the level of the liver that the pathologic modifications of the blood happen, and also there the quality of the energy of our heart muscle changes into durable manner. That makes no sense to me. So after you stuff this liter bottle with pancreatic juice and glucose and liver and heart, you let it sit for 40 days. Why 40 days? Noah knows. See, that's a little pun about Noah and the 40 days. Never mind. So you keep it for 40 days in a sterile bottle, and the heart and the liver disintegrate into a kind of goo which is then potentialized using the Korsakoff method. 
This is where you think that the glass that contains the remedy is shaking and then just emptied and refilled. And the water left on the side of the glass is thought to be enough of the potentiation to continue dilution of the substance. The dilution factor here is assumed to be 1 in 100. So go to Starbucks tomorrow and get your Americano at 200C made with the same method as Ososiliococcinum. They will make your drink. They will pour it out. They will fill the cup up with water and shake it. Then they will pour it out. Then they will fill the cup up with water again and shake it again and pour it out again. And they will do so 200 times. The ultimate rinse, lather, repeat. My, my wife is a compulsive dishwasher, but I don't think she'd rinse a glass out 200 times. But if you did that at Starbucks, that should potentiate the drink and the caffeine in it such that you will never sleep again. By the time they are done, the duck goo can be found at one part duck goo to one in 100 to the power of 200, which is one followed by 400 zeros. Now, a one followed by a hundred zeros is called a Google, so I suppose that's four Googles, or maybe half a Bing, or a fraction of a Yahoo. I don't know. But it is so dilute that it is so damn impressive, because there are only about 10 to the 80, plus or minus 3, total atoms in the entire observable universe. Then this one drop of the solution is placed upon a bunch of tiny pills, and sold for about a dollar a vial in the United States. I bet that linazolid is $50 a pill, but at least there is something useful, 600 milligrams of antibiotic, in fact, in that pill. And that is the active ingredient. Active. I do not think it means what you think it means. Is there anyone of sound mind who has listened to the above who thinks that ososiliococcinum has any potential to treat the flu. Really? I mean, if you do, I have a bridge in Brooklyn I would like to sell you. But at least you'll be a member on a death panel with me. How this nostrum is supposed to alter the course of influenza is a delusion understood only by homeopaths. Anyone who understands the life cycle of influenza, the immune response to infection, would find this concoction mystifying as a treatment for flu or its symptoms or anything. Ososiliacoxinum is popular all over the world, and there are many testimonials on the interwebs to suggest it is effective as both a preventative and a therapy, a stark example of why anecdotes are considered a suboptimal form of evidence. If I've said it once, I've said it once. The plural of anecdote is anecdotes, not data. There is no better example of the disconnect between evidence-based medicine and science-based medicine than ososiliococcinum, used for the treatment of flu, since the Cochrane Reviews have evaluated ososiliococcinum and suggest that while it is useless for prevention, big duh there, it shortens symptoms by 0.28 days. For reasons I cannot discover, the Cochrane Review on homeopathy was withdrawn. Embarrassment would be my guess. Other reviews have found no effect of ososiliococcinum on flu symptoms. Think about it. 0.28 days is about eh, 6 hours. 
Have you ever had a flu or viral illness and could say, yes, now it's 3 p.m. I am symptom-free and no longer ill. Viral illnesses don't end abruptly. They fade away. Given the nature of osocilicoxinum, it is far more likely that the six hours from the studies was the random variation seen in clinical trials. There is zero reason, based on the known pathophysiology of influenza and the known origin of osocilicoxinum, that the latter would have any effects on the former. And yet, while subsequently withdrawn, the folks at the Cochrane Reviews felt it was a reasonable thing to do to perform a meta-analysis on nonsense. Part the second, the Cochrane Reviews and the flu vaccine. Fortunately, no one needs to go one-on-one -on -one with death with osocilococcinum as your wingman. It has been so far a quiet flu season. Much better than last year when, thanks to H1N1, we were maxed out in the ICU. There is a better way to prevent the flu than dilute liquefied gut innards. The flu vaccine. The Cochrane folks put out an update of their systematic review of the effectiveness of influenza vaccine and their conclusions. It is not the greatest vaccine, but effective. Here I quote, in the relatively uncommon circumstances of vaccine matching the viral circulating strain and high circulation, 4% of unvaccinated people versus 1% of vaccinated people developed influenza symptoms. The corresponding figures for poor vaccine matching were 2% and 1%. These differences are not likely to be due to chance. Vaccination had a modest effect on time off work and no effect on hospital admissions or complication rates. Inactive vaccines caused local harms and an estimated 1.6 additional cases of Guillain-Barré, like my French accent, syndrome per million vaccinations. The author's conclusions, influenza vaccine had a modest effect in reducing influenza symptoms and working days lost, end quote. You get the feeling it really pains them to admit that the flu vaccine has efficacy, what with the caveat in the relatively uncommon circumstance of vaccine matching the viral circulating strain and high circulation, found in the conclusion. But then there's this really weirdness in the abstract. Quote, warning, <gasps> danger, Will Robinson, danger. This review includes 15 out of 36 trials funded by industry, four had no funding declaration. An early systematic review of 274 influenza vaccine studies published up to 2007 found industry-funded studies were published in more prestigious journals and cited more than other studies independently from methodologic quality and size. Studies funded from public sources were significantly less likely to report conclusions favorable to the vaccine. The review showed that reliable evidence on influenza vaccine is thin, but there is widespread manipulation of conclusions and, oh my God, spurious notoriety of the studies. The content and conclusion of this review should be interpreted in the light of this finding, end quote. Okay, fine. Who pays for the study can sometimes subtly bias the outcomes. I've written and discussed about that before. It's one of the reasons I never accept anything from a drug company. It does not necessarily discredit a study, 
but you have to read and interpret the studies carefully and always take pharmacy paid for studies with a bit of salt substitute. But you know, this is where I thought that the meta-analysis came in. Someone like, oh, I don't know, the Cochrane reviews the data with no concern about the quality of the journal or the notoriety of the references. They look at the numbers and the quality of the methods. The Cochrane reviews, I thought, looked at these studies unbiased by the spin in the conclusions or where it was published. So how does that apply to the Cochrane review? So I can think of only two reasons why this warning was published. One, the authors do not like the conclusions of the data and are trying to undermine the result, spinning the abstract to try and sway the message casual readers will take away from the review. Most people don't read past the abstract. Or B, the authors are saying that they are biased by the conclusions in the papers and they are biased by the notoriety of some studies. And as a result, their analysis of the numbers is not to be trusted. In other words, they are saying that the Cochrane reviewers are incredulous rubes who just fell off the turnip truck and were sold a bill of goods by those city slickers with their manipulated conclusions and their spurious notoriety. You know, it's really sad either way. The discussion is odd with the authors saying that everybody misuses their meta-analysis and ignores their data. Quote, Both generalizations are not supported by any evidence and seem to originate from the desire to use our review to support decisions already taken. The misquotes appear to be based on both the abstract and plain language summary which is what you'd expect from a superficial reading of the review by people with a specific agenda, end quote. Don't you love how tone can change meaning? They also use significant column inches to demonstrate just how the American College of Physicians misquoted them. And then they say, quote, the CDC authors clearly do not weigh interpretation by quality of evidence, but quote, anything that supports their theory, end quote. What a weird, petulant little pot shot at the CDC. I could see a statement like that being made in maybe, oh, I don't know, an editorial or a blog or perhaps even a quack cast. But in the text of a major review, it makes me wonder if the Cochrane reviewers have any editorial oversight of their content. If they do, then their editors have some explaining to do as to how a major evidence-based review could fundamentally revert to Mommy, mommy, I don't like the way the CDC is playing with my ball and they're calling me names. Make them stop. Ah, I love tone. It is like reading a review of gold mining efficacy and the purity of the mined gold. And the author noting that, well, some of the mines are near Las Vegas, which is a den of sin and iniquity. And gold miners discuss mining at the roulette tables. And sometimes gold is made into baubles that decorate painted women. So the contents and conclusions of the mining review should be interpreted in the light of these findings. It is so weird. It is probably projection on my part, but I find the Cochrane reviews on influenza vaccine to be biased against the flu vaccine in a subtle way that I do not see in their other reviews. 
the Ososiliococcinum review, while fundamentally stupid given the nature of the intervention, brainlessly followed the data, with emphasis on brainlessly, even though there was no plausibility whatsoever for the intervention. The choice of adjectives used by the authors seems designed to cast doubt on vaccine efficacy. Now, I'm a vaccine proponent, and I could very well be reading the text and finding something that is not there. But, as an example, the plain language summary says, quote, Inactivated influenza vaccines decrease the risk of symptoms of influenza and time off work, but their effects are minimal especially if the vaccines and the circulating viruses are mismatched, unquote. Here's the pedant in me, minimal, of minimal amount, quality or degree. The data says, in the relatively uncommon circumstances of vaccine-matching viral circulating strain in high circulation, 4% of unvaccinated people versus 1% of vaccinated people developed influenza symptoms, end quote. In a country the size of the United States, that is a difference between 12 million people getting flu, those unvaccinated, and 3 million people getting flu, if everybody was vaccinated. Yes, I know, not all 300 million Americans are healthy adults. Worst case scenario, it would be 6 million people getting flu if everybody got the vaccine and there was a mismatch, versus 3 million. Still, across the whole population of the country, that would not be a minimal effect. I would take a dollar for every flu case prevented. In comparison, there are 250,000 new cases of hepatitis B each year in the United States, and maybe 4,000 HPV-related cancer deaths each year in the United States. This is much less mortality and morbidity than influenza, yet we vaccinate for these infections as we have decided for good or ill, that the cost-benefit is worth it. Are the effects of flu vaccine minimal in preventing diseases? Well, maybe, but that's a judgment call, not a medical science call. Flu vaccine seems to be a good intervention, a reasonable bang for the buck. I would say it is a moderately effective vaccine with widespread health benefits beyond the prevention of acute influenza. More on that later. The cost-effectiveness of flu vaccine is debatable and is ultimately a value judgment. In medicine, they calculate the quality-adjusted life year of an intervention to see if it is worth it to society. It is a form of evaluation that makes my brain hurt, and I lack the knowledge to do much more than to take them at face value. The outcome of a cost-effectiveness evaluation depends upon assumptions made. For the elderly in flu vaccination, it goes something like this. Quote, Vaccine was cost-savings, i.e. both reduced medical expenses and improved health for all age groups and geographic areas analyzed in the base case. For patients aged 65 and older, vaccination saved $8.27 and gained 1.21 quality-adjusted days of life per person vaccinated. Vaccination of 23 million elderly people unvaccinated in 1993 could have gained about 48,000 years of healthy life and saved 197 million. In univariate sensitivity analyses, 
The results remained cost savings except for doubling of vaccination costs, including future medical costs of survivors and lowering vaccination effectiveness. The assumptions most unfavorable to vaccination cost per quality adjusted life year range from $35,822 for ages 65 to 74 to 598,487 for ages 85 years or older, end quote. Ugh, that gives me a headache. But in the U.S., a cost per quality life year of around 50,000 is considered acceptable for an intervention. It appears to me that the authors of the Cochrane Reviews think the flu vaccine is not a worthwhile public health intervention, which is fine, but come out and say so. Quit hiding behind weasel words and words like minimal and complain that people misuse your reviews to their own ends. They get close to admitting this in the discussion. Quote, given the limited availability of resources for mass immunization, the use of influenza vaccines should be primarily directed to where there is clear evidence of benefit, end quote. Well, personally, I think that there is clear evidence of benefit. And if I waited for perfect evidence in medicine, I would treat no one. However, the preponderance of data from basic principles to epidemiology to clinical trials lead me to conclude that the flu vaccine is moderately effective, cost-effective, and very safe. Someday, I hope they will develop the universal flu vaccine, and then, with universal vaccination, we will get rid of flu-related morbidity and mortality once and for all. But to quote Rumsfeld, I have to fight wars with the weapons I have. <sighs> to me, the Cochrane reviewers appear to be whiny little babies. By the way, this is not an ad hominem because I do not think the review is wrong or flawed because they are crybabies. The substance is fine. The spin in style makes them whiny little crybabies. Boo friggity who. Got an issue? Here's a tissue. My writing for the Quackcast and Science-Based Medicine has evolved somewhat over the years. And I try, when I write my scripts, not to make fun of people, but to make fun of ideas. It's the ideas that are stupid not the people that believe in them. I used to be a big proponent that we were visited by astronauts and that they made the pyramids and that sort of stuff. Of course, I was 12 at the time. But still, just because you believe something stupid doesn't make you stupid. So I want to emphasize, I don't think the authors of the Cochrane Review are stupid. I don't think they're wrong. I think they're whiny little crybabies who are putting an inappropriate spin on their results. Part the I, I, I. I kind of sound like Ozzy Osbourne there, don't I? I, I, I. Some cherry pick studies. Now, there are multiple potential benefits from the flu vaccine. One, you don't get the flu this year. By the way, in an interesting real-world study published this month in the New England Journal of Medicine, in Chinese school children with the H1N1 vaccine, there was an excellent result. They estimated the vaccine to be 87.5% effective. Quote, Through hospital-based surveillance, 382 cases of incident neurologic disease were identified within 10 weeks after mass vaccination. 
including 27 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Get this, none of the neurologic conditions occurred among the vaccine recipients. <gasps> wow, so H1N1 vaccine may have been protective against getting Guillain-Barre, though you can't really conclude that from the study. From 245 schools, 25,000 students participated in mass vaccination. 244,000 did not. These are probably small schools in China. During the period of October 9 through November 15, 2009, the incidence of confirmed cases of H1N1 per 100,000 students was 35.9 amongst vaccinated students and 281.4 among unvaccinated students. Thus, the estimated vaccine effectiveness was 87.3%. Okay, that's pretty good when you got a good match and the population is able to respond to your vaccine. Other benefits from the flu vaccine. You have a milder case of the flu. Or you do not pass the flu on to others. Or you do not die from flu. Or you do not die from short-term complications of flu. Or, more interestingly perhaps, you do not die from the long-term complications of the flu. And, interestingly, you may not get the flu in the future with other strains. It would appear that those who had the 1976 swine flu vaccine had some protection against the 2009 strain. And since strains of influenza keep returning, it is always a possibility that while the flu vaccine you get this year doesn't work against this year's strain, it may attenuate the disease in the future when one of the strains, well, like a boomerang, come back. One of the aggravating issues of flu vaccination is that we have never had a critical mass of patients vaccinated where the effects of herd immunity could really kick in. Quote, considerable evidence indicates that herd immunity is operative in the control of influenza as well. In Tecumseh, Michigan, 85% of 3,159 school children were given flu vaccine over four days and compared to a similar population in the neighboring community of Adrian, isn't that from Rocky? Where vaccine was not administered. Three times more influenza-like illnesses occurred among people of all ages in Adrian than in Tecumseh, demonstrating that immunizing school children in the community significantly protects the population at large in that community. There's a recent Clinical Infectious Disease Review of the Importance of School Children Serving as Vectors of Dissemination of Influenza in the Community. One of the arguments against the efficacy of the flu vaccine as a preventative against death is the fact that those who get the vaccine have decreased mortality when there is no circulating flu. It is suggested that the decreased mortality is not due to the flu vaccine, but rather those who get the vaccine are healthier. That is in part true, but could there be an alternative explanation? Now, there are two ongoing themes in the infectious disease literature that have yet to overlap. One is that people who get severe infections that require hospitalization not only have increased short-term mortality, but long-term mortality as well. People who come in with pneumonia or urosepsis tend to die at higher rates over the next year. Now, why they die is not well worked out, but as an example, those who die after getting hospitalized for pneumonia 
have increased inflammatory markers at discharge. Now, the other theme is that inflammation is a prothrombotic state. Inflammation leads to clot. And patients with acute infections are more likely to have strokes, to have heart attacks, and to have pulmonary embolisms, and the risk for vascular events can be elevated after an acute infection for up to a year. Even an aggressive tooth cleaning increases the risk of a vascular event. Quote, the rate of vascular events was significantly increased in the first four weeks after invasive dental treatment and gradually returned to baseline within six months. I'm never going to the dentist again. I have said before that if probiotics could really boost your immune system, they should also increase your vascular events like stroke and heart attacks. Infection leads to inflammation, which leads to clot, which leads to vascular events, i.e. strokes, heart attacks, and pulmonary emboli. If you could stop that cascade, say with a hmm, vaccine, you could conceivably decrease the number of long-term deaths. And that is exactly what appears to happen with a combination of the influenza vaccine and the pneumococcal vaccine. Quote, of 36,636, hmm, 36636, subjects recruited, 7,292 received both the pneumococcal and flu vaccine, 2,076 received the flu vaccine alone, and 1,875 received the pneumococcal vaccine alone, and 25,393 were unvaccinated with a duration of follow-up of 45,834 person years. Baseline characteristics were well-matched between the groups, except there were fewer male patients in the pneumococcal and influenza group and fewer cases of comorbid chronic pulmonary disease among the unvaccinated persons. At week 64, dual, that's 64, mind you, they're 52 weeks in a year, dual vaccinees experienced fewer deaths, fewer cases of pneumonia, ischemic stroke, acute myocardial infarction compared with unvaccinated subjects. Dual vaccination resulted in fewer coronary and intensive care admissions compared with unvaccinated subjects. End quote. Note, the beneficial effects occurred up to 64 weeks after receiving the vaccines. Influenza vaccine could conceivably protect from death outside the flu vaccine because vaccination prevents the sustained detrimental inflammatory effects that one gets from infections. Now, this result does not hold true in every study, but most of the data suggests that the beneficial effects of preventing influenza are wide-ranging and not limited to the simple effect of avoiding acute viral pneumonia. The effects of influenza and the vaccine are more complicated than the simple flu vaccine prevents flu. Part the fourth, the last part, two statements. There are, I reckon, two statements that pretty much ensure that the writer is an influenza goof. One is that the H1N1 pandemic was no big deal. I do not know what planet they were on, but H1N1 brought my hospital right to the edge of the volume of severe illness we could handle. 
my system, I think we had around 10 deaths, several in pregnant women, and all in young people. In 25 years, I have never had a young person die of acute influenza until last year, and I do not want to repeat the experience. One of our hospitals is a trauma center, and we were able to save a few patients who would have otherwise died because we offer ECMO. While the epidemic was not particularly virulent compared to historical disasters like the 1919 pandemic, it was the worst flu season I have ever experienced. The other statement is that the CDC is, quote, backing off, end quote, of the claim that influenza kills 36,000 people a year, as if the prior estimates were somehow a lie. The issue with medicine is we develop better methodologies and techniques to try and answer difficult questions. How many people die of influenza? Well, for years the answer has been around 36,000, and I have discussed the paper that resulted in that number. It was, like all epidemiologic studies, imperfect, but was the best we had for the time. Now, the CDC has done a better study. For H1N1, in 2010, the estimates for direct and indirect deaths is 12,470, with a range of about 8,800 to 18,000, certainly less than 36,000. How about other years? Turns out that, like much of medicine, the answer is complicated, and it depends upon the year and the circulating strain of flu and probably how many people get the vaccine in a given year, although they don't state that in the paper. Some years are better than others. Estimated number of annual influenza-associated deaths with underlying pneumonia and influenza in the United States from 1976 through 2007, flu season had an average of 6,309 deaths a year, with a minimum of 961 and a maximum of almost 15,000, plus or minus the usual standard of error. The estimated number of annual influenza-associated deaths with underlying respiratory and circulatory causes in the United States varied from an average of 23,000 to a minimum of 3,000 and a maximum of 48,000. Some strains of flu cause more death. Some strains cause less death. We have bad years. We have good years. We have years when there's lots of vaccination and mild flu. We may have a year when there's a little vaccination and a virulent flu. Like so much of medicine, the answer hinges on the phrase, it depends. The CDC used more sophisticated techniques and came up with more nuanced numbers. They're not backing away. They are refining the information. When someone asserts that the CDC is backing away from prior numbers, you know they have no understanding of medicine or epidemiology and the constant urge to improve that we have in medicine. Unlike scams, which as best I can tell, have made almost no substantive improvements since their founding. Of course, you cannot improve upon perfection. Or increase by multiplying something by zero. So, get the vaccine and avoid the osocilococcinum. And that ends QuackCast57. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for voting for me for best podcast. This is copyright 2010 under the Creative Commons license. 
Don't forget to go to moremarket.squarespace.com where you can see my growing multimedia empire with links to my other blogs, my other podcasts, my iOS app, and soon, yes soon, my infectious disease book. Because the world needs more Mark Chrislip. See you next time. Bye.